welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. And today, I, I have the special opportunity of welcoming my first ever return guest, the one and only Keith Giles. Keith, thank you so much for being here with us today. Chris, thank you so much for having me back. It's an honor to be your first return uh, guest. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this topic, this conversation. Oh, I know. It's going to be, it's going to be good. It's, I feel like it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a good topic for the moment that we find ourselves in right now as a, as a country and as a world. And I mean, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it kind of is the prevalent topic forever. That's always been on everybody's mind. Um, but before we start, I actually have, a, we're talking about eschatology, but I actually have two funny stories to tell you before we start, if you're cool with that. Oh no, please. I love stories. So the first one, and and you'll love this. So I grew up in in Southern California and I went to a small private school growing up. And one of my classmates was Kirk Cameron's oldest son. Oh my gosh. So I personally know Kirk. I, I literally, I kid you not, my, he he reached out to me because we were family friends growing up. So he reached out to me and invited me to come up and see him speaking in Charlotte because I live in Charleston now. And so we went to see his marriage and family uh, seminar, I think a few months ago, but it was mostly just to say hi to an old friend. But I thought you'd appreciate that the person interviewing you, who we both see very much eye to eye, grew up in, in, in not just in that thinking, but with someone who's kind of become one of the faces of that theology, um, even though yeah. he... He doesn't, he, he kind of tries to distance himself from it, even though it's very subtle. Um, and then the second one, so I did a gap year program after, after high school called Joshua Wilderness Institute mm. and the building itself was funded by the one and only Tim LaHaye. Oh, speaking wow. of left behind. Oh yeah. So he, he gave money to do the program that we did. So we always joked throughout the year that it was a uh, Tim LaHaye's fallout shelter <laughs> up in the mountains of, of Northern California. Well, that's so, probably, yeah, that's probably what it will end up being eventually if, uh, if it ever comes to that. Oh yeah. Just in case he, and I, and, and it's funny too, growing up in that line of thinking, if I was like, man, if I miss the rapture, I definitely go up to Hume Lake and, uh, and hide out there and wait for Jesus to come back. Well, so, you, know, uh, I, you know, for the longest time, everybody had a zombie plan. You know, it was like, it was very common for people to be like, well, what's your zombie plan? And with a, with yeah. a straight face, people were like, well, me, me and my friend Todd, you know, he's got a pickup and, and my other friend Steve, he's got some shotguns and, and we're going to go up there and I got a camp stove and we're going to head up there to this, you know, my mom has a cabin and, you know, it was like you had a plan. You knew who you were going to call, where you were going to meet, what you were going to grab, you know, and all of that. And so like, yeah, for Christians, it's like you got to have a rapture plan, right? Oh, yeah. Or you tribulation, gotta. tribulation plan. It's funny because my tribulation plan and my zombie plan are the same plan. It's still going up to that place <laughs> right. in Northern California. And and um, they're both just about as likely to happen, by the way. So Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that that's very true. So, I, I mean, I guess first and foremost, since, since we've kind of started talking about what we're going to be talking about, tell us about what you're about to be gearing up to releasing. Yeah, so I've finished reading. Uh, sorry, finished writing uh, my next book. Um, the title is Jesus. It's in the Jesus Un series, so the title is Jesus Unexpected. Uh, haven't nailed down for sure the subtitle yet, but it's probably going to be along the lines of something like um, "How the End Times Ended and Christ Already Returned" or something along those lines. And um, in general, what I'm what I'm 
writing about in this book is um, the first part of the book I'm exposing kind of the origins of this, where we get this whole sort of uh, end times uh, rapture uh, theory, these, all these ideas, these crazy ideas we get, like how, where did it come from? So I, I talk about that, the history of this view, which is, by the way, a very recent view. Um, most people don't mm-hmm. are aware of that. And the Oriental, where does it come from? And then, then I look at sort of the, the basis of that view, which is based on dispensationalism. Um, and I just one by one kind of take the basics of dispensationalism as a, as a view and question it and say, well, does the Bible teach some of these things that dispensationalism claims is true? And uh, in my opinion, it doesn't. And I, mm. I, I think I can prove that. And I try to sh- show that through scripture. And then the final part of the book, uh, which is really what I want to talk about, really, I have to get all this stuff out of the way so I can talk about the, the main thing I want to talk about, which is um, what I believe the scriptures actually do have to say about sort of the quote unquote end times or last days and the second coming of Christ. And what does that mean for us today uh, and yeah. in the future? Yeah, and that's the big question that I really want to ask you about. Of as 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 some obviously we we run in very similar circles of of people and and we're exposed to different teachings on the eschatology. And one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is, but I really I I struggle with Revelation, but I really want to believe that Jesus is coming back. And and that's that's when I so when I hear someone like, oh well, he's not. I'm like. What am I supposed to do with that? Like, how how do I respond to a question like that? But obviously, like you said, we have to deal with other questions before we can get to that big question. So I guess we should just start from the beginning and and just say, where did we get the ideas about what's going to happen in the end that we have now? Right. <clears throat> well, the the theology, as I said, that has become super popular, especially in the West and it you know, predominantly in, in America, um, comes from a guy named John Nelson Darby. Um, he presented these ideas around 1830, um, which is the same year. I just have to mention this for reference point. It's the same year that Joseph Smith invented Mormonism. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's a very recent historically, as far as Christianity is concerned, a very recent point of view. Um, specifically his, his big thing was, uh, reframing, the ideas of the end times, taking some, well, taking all these old and New Testament prophetic scriptures and Ezekiel and Daniel, um, Isaiah, uh, the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus gives us in Matthew 24. It's also paralleled in Mark and in Luke. And in, of course, um, maybe a verse here and there in Thessalonians. And then, of course, Revelation itself. And what he does is, is he um, pieces these things together. And, he, and when he did this, this was something new. Like this was a, an idea that at the time, um, I don't want to say nobody had these ideas, but uh, he certainly put them together in a way that 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 you know he was weaving all of these different things together to present this idea in a way that became accepted and popular, and it's and it has grown to what it is today because of his influence. Um, and, the, and it, well, in fact, the way the way it got popularized was when he came to America, because he was from he's from England. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the members of the Plymouth Brethren. Um, but when he came to America, uh, it re- this idea really became really accepted in, um, by a lot of American uh, you know pastors and leaders. Um, and then what really sealed the deal was um, the Schofield Study Bible. 
which incorporated all of his ideas about the end times and eschatology into the actual notes of the Bible itself. And then what happened was people who got the Schofield Bible would read those little notes at the bottom of the page as if they were part of the Bible, like, oh, this is what mm. this means. And uh, pretty soon, you know, you had a whole generation of Christians who couldn't read these scriptures any other way. Hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the, that's the problem with commentaries is, is eventually that, that little thin line between, I I still have my John MacArthur study Bible. Oh, and yeah. it's interesting looking at uh, how that little thin line, the more and more you read what's under it instead of what's over it, it starts to blur just a little bit. Um, and, and it's interesting to me because especially growing up in that kind of theology, it makes a lot of sense when you're in it, but mm -hmm. Once you leave it, you're kind of like, what was I, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. Uh, like what, what is this stuff? Um, right. Well, can well, I say, can I say why? I mean, uh, or that's a good, that's a good point. Um, and I've heard, I've heard many people uh, who have studied dispensationalism uh, and well, it's even, it's even more eye opening. I think when you talk to somebody, let's say in Canada or England or some other country, um, who didn't grow up in a dispensational environment, didn't grow up reading, hearing, you know, didn't grow up reading the Schofield Study Bible, didn't grow up um, hearing sermons every Sunday with this, with this viewpoint, um, with pastors who didn't attend some of these dispensational seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary and Fuller and some of these other seminaries, which again are spitting out dispensationally trained pastors. So when you hear mm -hmm. a, a Christian teacher or pastor or even just a layperson who wasn't raised in that environment, um, a lot of times what they'll say is like, I get that, like you said, like, where does this come from? Like, how did anyone come up with this? Cause if you just read the Bible flat, straight for what it is, you really won't come up with these ideas. This is why it really took until like 1830 for someone like Darby to really create a story. And, and this is what I think it boils down to. It has to start with the story. Like somebody has to first tell you this story. Okay, everybody, here's what's going to happen. Um, there's going to be this guy who shows up. He's the Antichrist, right? And in the beginning, he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. But then after three and a half years, he's going to break the treaty. He's going to set himself up in the temple as God. Oh, by the way, the temple. Yeah. He has to rebuild the temple so that he can go to the <laughs> temple and then stop the daily sacrifice, which also has to start up again so he can stop it. And then uh, he'll perform this abomination of desolation uh, in the temple. And then he'll force everyone to take this number of the beast, 666, on their forehead or their hand. And uh, and then, of course, uh, there'll be a rapture <clears throat> at some point in this, whether it's pre or mid or post. <clears throat> Somewhere in there, there's Jesus coming back and there's a rapture. And then the people that are left behind are who don't take the mark will be hunted down and put in these camps. And uh, it'll be like the Holocaust again and uh, like concentration camps and stuff. And this will go on for a long time. But then all these crazy creatures are going to come out of the ground with multiple heads and horns and eyes and stingers. And they're going to be flying around like these almost like a, you know, half man, half horse thing with a tail of a scorpion. And it's a, it's dude, this story is the most epic story you could possibly tell. Right. Oh yeah. This is the most amazing story. Right. And then at yeah. the end there'll be this massive battle and Jesus comes back and there's this huge, like Lord of the Rings, you know, makes the Lord of the Rings look like nothing. And there's this massive battle and Jesus, of course, wins, and that's the end of the world, and then there's the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so he tells you that whole story, <clears throat> and once you are told that amazing story, then and only then can they take you to different places in the Bible and say, well, see this verse over here? 
this is the part I told you about the mark of the beast. Mm. Now let's go over here. Remember I told you the thing about the peace treaty? Well, see over here is the thing about this this uh, peace treaty, right, in, in Daniel. And remember I mentioned this mm. other thing? Well, let's jump over here to Revelation. There's this other thing over here. But the point is that nowhere in the Bible is that entire story told like that. And a lot of the key parts of that story, if you actually go and look at those passages, don't mention the things that they are mentioning. And um, yeah. so, like, again, it only works if someone convinces you of this amazing story first and then come come up behind it with some verses to sort of prove it. And then it kind of seems like, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess that's what that means. Um, you know, yeah. especially when it comes to things like Revelation or any apocalyptic literature, because it is so difficult to understand. It's written in such deep and dense, you know, uh, symbolism and, and allegory that, um, you know, no one can just read those straight, I think, especially today, and know what the heck is going on. We, you, if it, so someone shows up and says, hey, Revelation, I completely understand it. Uh, let me explain it to you. Boom. People are going to sit down on the floor in a circle and say, please tell me, because I can't make heads or tails of this thing. So yeah. all it really takes is someone showing up who says, oh, no, I understand it. Let me tell you what it means. Well, okay. Because <laughs> no, I sure don't know what it means. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and I guess, I mean, my only question is, uh, is, it, is the temple going to be rebuilt or is it the, the American embassy in Jerusalem? That That's that's what it is, right? No, that, it's that's not. The, that's the second temple. <laughs> no. It's not. Well, oh. No, no. But no, but there is no. So so let's, that's a good question. Is, is there, is there going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem? So let's just take that from a biblical uh, prophecy perspective. There mm -hmm. are no prophecies in the scriptures about the temple being rebuilt after uh, the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70. So let's just point that out. There are dozens of scriptures. I mean, maybe that's maybe I shouldn't say dozens. That's not literally true, but there's at least five or six um, mm -hmm. prophecies, specific prophecies in the Old and in the New Testament about the destruction of uh, the the temple in Jerusalem that ended up taking place that was fulfilled in AD seventy. Okay, so yeah. there's that is in the scriptures now. So what we don't find is that. After that, there's any new prophecy that will, after that destruction, there will be another one. That isn't in the scriptures. Mm. Um, there is a tiny thing, a, a tiny mention in the Old Testament. Excuse me. Um, and by the way, this is the reason why a lot of Jewish people don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Because there is a, an Old Testament prophecy that says... Um, that the Messiah who comes will be the one to build the temple. Now let's mm. just stop there because all these Christians at this point today who are dispensational, who are expecting this temple to be rebuilt. Um, I, I think they don't include that detail. In other words, a Jewish person says the way I'm going to recognize the Messiah is he's the guy rebuilding that temple. But mm. I don't think that, Christians today are expecting that the Antichrist, because in their mind that would be the Antichrist, that he actually is the one who does the rebuilding of that temple. But that is what those scriptures say, that the Messiah who comes will build a temple that will actually last forever. So again, this is why Jewish people say, well, that wasn't Jesus, because not only did he not build a temple that lasts forever, there is no temple. I go to Jerusalem right now, there's nothing. 
Yeah. Right. And actually, when Jesus showed up on the scene, there already was a temple. It was and it was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he not only didn't build it, you know, it was already there when he got there. And if anything, he prophesied the destruction of that temple. Mm-hmm. So um, again, what's going on there? So uh, well, what's going on there is that Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah building a temple that would last forever. Um, according to Paul and the uh, early New Testament writers, the the um, the answer to that question is that the temple that Jesus built that lasts forever is you and me, right? Mm-hmm. We are the temple yeah. of the living God. We are the temple not made with human hands that are living stones, as it says in Second uh, Peter. So, um, so that's how Jesus fulfills that prophecy. Yes, Jesus was the Messiah, and yes, he did build a temple that will last forever and ever, but it's us. It's the, it's the body of Christ. And so there is no prophecy of any other temple being built except the one that the Messiah is going to build, which he's already built, and it's still, still in the process of being built, which is the church. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that makes perfect sense, and I guess leads me in, into my next question of, Something that I've always thought about, in, especially in regards to the temple, is a few years ago I had the opportunity to go to Israel and to go up onto the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock stands today. And in my mind at that time, I'm thinking, wow, this thing's going to have to get destroyed so the temple can be rebuilt and there's going to be this massive war and Christians do not care about the blood that is going to be spilt let alone about the the eternal destination of the souls of any of these people. They're all just pawns in this uh, Thor Ragnarok-esque battle that's going to take place. Um, and I guess my question with that is, is how much do you think the American narrative of, of empiricism it has impacted our marriage with dispensationalism? CIA and NSA uh, leaders were saying this is a really bad idea for for a situation in the Middle East. Like it made no sense on any other level except that it's fulfilling some need and desire and expectation that oh something has to happen in the Middle East for Jesus to come back. Um and 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 so yeah a lot of Christianity um has absolutely influenced the US government, right? And um and Christians Christians today that are entangled are very much um I mean you can see that what they're ultimately arguing for is a theocracy, right? That's kind of where they're pushing things to go, um, which that alone should really scare us. <laughs> so, so when it comes to the temple, for example, right? So when you ask the question, will the temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem? I would say there is no prophecy that says it has to be. Um, but are there people that are w- wanting desperately to fulfill something that they think has to happen? Well, yeah. So th- there is the possibility that one day, maybe even in our lifetime, uh, they might rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. Um, that may happen. But if it does happen, it will not be in fulfillment of any prophecies, and it won't be something God wants to happen because he's already, he's already fulfilled it through Jesus. He's, Jesus is building, has already built the temple, and that's the temple that he's recognizing. Um, and again, I think it's, diff- it's going to be difficult for those sort of Zionist um, dispensational Christians who are, who desperately want to kind of forcefully uh, rebuild this temple, this Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Again, the problem is um, as even though Jewish people really want there to one day be a temple again in Jerusalem, they are really seriously waiting for their Messiah to show up 
and do that. And I promise you, they don't think their Messiah is Trump or Mike Pence or, you know, like, so they, so that's why they're not, they're not going to want anybody, just anybody to build it. That's not the, that's not the point. Um, there, if it's going to be their temple and not a Christian temple to fulfill some dispensational prophecy, if it's going to be a Jewish temple, then the Jewish people are going to be the ones to decide what it looks like and who builds it and when and where and how. Yeah. And I, I don't know that we can convince them <laughs> that, Hey, no, really, here's the Messiah. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be, that seems to be a sticking point. I'd really, that alone, I think may prevent it from happening. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with the Jer- or with the Temple Institute in Jerusalem? I've heard of it. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with it. Oh, they're they're ready. They um they have Oh, yeah, they've got all the the, the the they've gotten I've heard, right? They've got the heifer and the Yeah. ashes and all that. Oh, they yeah, they're they're ready basically for the everything up there to be removed and for them to rebuild it. And it's it it's so I'm, i mean i'm kind of just caught on that of even when we were there talking about the temple i mean the temple mount is is owned by the jordanian government and we we were caught for lack of a better term discussing the temple and these jordanian uh enforcement officers that are peacekeepers who were up there got really upset and were like there's never been a temple here it's only ever been the mosque um, and the Dome of the Rock and basically forced us to leave. And it, the, the crazy thing is you go underneath the Temple Mount and there's archaeological evidence that there was, in fact, a temple there. But I mean, right. that and that kind of experience, but also experiences of peers that I've had that have been there during real riots and, and real violence in the streets. It, just the the idea of someone deciding you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remove all of these sacred religious sites and build my own. Just thinking about the, the unchrist likeness of that. It's just, it blows my mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it definitely is a source of conflict, right? And um, you, because of you, you have Christian and Muslim and Jewish factions all with very different agendas uh, and, um, yeah, it's just something where as long as we continue to push hard for these things, uh, it's just going to create more sparks. It's going to create more conflict and friction. And, and again, if there's going to be any real hope for true peace, here's the crazy thing though. This is the crazy thing about dispensationalism is, um, it actually has framed in the minds of Christians. This is one of my pet peeves. It is framed in the minds of evangelical Christians in America, the idea that anyone, sh- any Christian showing up wanting to bring peace in the Middle East, he must be the Antichrist. Yeah. That is crazy to me. Yeah. Like we have, we have not only convinced ourselves that Jesus himself wasn't nonviolent, enemy loving uh, Messiah, which of course he very obviously was. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only we, we want to obscure that, we actually now want to twist it around to say, that any effort to bring peace is somehow demonic or anti-Jesus. Mm. Like, uh, it's, it just boggles my mind. So that is one of the reasons why I wanted to write on this topic, because I feel like uh, it's a, it is a very toxic and, frankly, extremely dangerous theology, which has very, you know, very real-world implications. People are suffering right now, today, in, in the Middle East because of these ideas. Um, and it's going to just continue if we can't 
look at this, come at this from another angle and maybe see this through a different lens. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to see how our expectation, our, our biblical expectation of, of nuclear fallouts and one world orders and Apache attack helicopters and, and stuff like that create all the tension in, in Israel, quite frankly, or at least a lot of it is, is created by what goes on within dispensational theology. And all of it is a, a misinterpretation of what might be biblical prophecy. And so I guess that leads to the next question of does the Bible predict the future and should should we even be looking to the Bible to predict the future? Well, obviously, depending on who you ask, Chris, you would get many different answers. <laughs> um, but, but since you're asking me, uh, I would say that, I mean, over time, my answer has changed. Mm. Um, uh, but I've reached a point now where I would say no, that I, I would say, actually, when I read when I'm reading the scriptures, um I don't believe that the scriptures are telling, well, not nothing. It's not like, well, there's nothing in there about the future, but I would say the majority of things that we have been told are about the future, like some of these dispensational elements, like, like I already mentioned, right? There's an antichrist, there's a temple being rebuilt. There's a mark of the beast. There's this tribulation period. Like, no, none of those things have anything to do with anything that's going to happen in our future. Mm. Um, uh, now, now I do believe that in general, yes, there is a picture of of a potential future. I shouldn't even say potential. I would say I should say there's the uh, there's the picture of an inevitable future that we get to collaborate with Christ and the Holy Spirit to bring about hmm. uh, one day. And I think we do have pictures of that. We have a we have this hopeful idea of a future kingdom of Christ, literally um, overtaking the kingdoms of this world. That I do believe is is spoken of in the New Testament, and I de- and that I definitely do believe we have a part to play in that. Uh, so in that sense, yes, that that is what I think it says about the future. But um, I don't think the other things do. And again, in the book, I I go out of my way to say, well, what about this? What about that? Well, let's look at that scripture uh, and see what is it really about. Hmm. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I mean, for at, at least for for someone growing up in in that theology everything it feels like everything pointed to the future and at, at least over the the last few year, the last year or so even i've really been learning and and a lot of that is thanks to to the work that you do and, and the work that uh your colleagues at the heretic happy hour do as well of, of learning to look at these future prophecies as present tense realities in which i can live now and if I make certain choices, live in now and might live in continuously. Right. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the problem with, um, the danger really about reading the scripture as if it is about either current events or things that could be happening, you know, in the, in the next few years, um, the problem with doing that um, especially when you talk about people who have made a living doing this, right? Like, people like Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey, who wrote the late great planet earth way back in the sixties and seventies. He had this, you know, he, he was, he was the original guy, I think who was at least the American making money on these kinds of things. Um, and books like, but which by the way, I have a copy of this book, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Oh man. Um, Oh, it, it's, it's genius. I mean, come on, man. 88 reasons. I mean, how can he be wrong? He was 80. He was, here's the thing. <laughs> he was wrong 88 times. And, <laughs> 
And how Lindsay, how Lindsay has published, I don't know how many, probably a few dozen books. And guess what? Every one of them is wrong. Tim LaHaye wrote a, a series of books. They're all wrong. There used to be a program on um, TBN that was, and there's probably, probably still are, these sort of end times prophecy programs where it would come on and give you the news and then tell you and give you a scripture that says, oh, that's, that could be a fulfillment of Ezekiel, whatever, or Daniel, blah, 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 and, or Matthew 24. And, um, and the problem is if you watch those, like if you go back 10 years and watch early episodes of those show, same shows, they, you can see plainly, oh no, they were wrong about that. And that had nothing to do with that. And, and so here's what, here's what all of those teachers, all of those authors, all of those people that are trying to read the Bible as if it's got some connection to our newspaper or, or to the, you know, CNN or something. Here's the problem with every single one of them. Every single one of them is 100% wrong every single time. Their track record is 0% accuracy. Mm. And guess what? None of that hurts their popularity. They could put out a book tomorrow and sell 100,000 copies. They could have a conference tomorrow, uh, assuming we, we weren't, you know, with a, with a, uh, pandemic restrictions, mm -hmm. uh, we could have a large group of people and you could pack out an arena with people wanting to hear the, the latest and greatest prophecy uh, of, you know, what's, what's going to happen, you know, in the end times. And that's the thing that, that blows my mind is that these people who, who do write these books and, and have these programs and have these events and, and things put out these DVD series of end times prophecy and stuff. They're 100% wrong 100% of the time. They've never been right once about anything, ever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all of those prophecies, all those predictions, not a single one's ever come true. And yet, they're not hiding in shame somewhere and their career is ruined. Oh, no. <laughs> like our appetite for these kinds of things is insatiable. And we'll gladly buy the next book about the next thing um, and, and just gobble it up. Uh, and so that's kind of a weird kind of a psychosis that I notice in in Christians, like we just can't get enough of this stuff, right? Even if it's wrong, it turns out later to be wrong. Like we kind of go, well, oh, well, but, but we still, still have an endless belief and hope. Well, okay. He was wrong, but maybe this other guy's right. Or maybe this other book will tell me something, you know, hmm. it's kind of sad. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, it, obviously it's, it's kind of impressive how disappointing a lot of these people have turned out to be and not in the sense, I don't want to disrespect them in any way. But I mean, I think about someone like Tim LaHaye, who wrote all of these books, wrote however many of the Left Behind books there were, uh, wrote all of the kids series. I think there were like 40 books in the kids series, wrote all these different spinoff series. And then they've made a bunch of movies, which quite frankly, the Christian versions are better than the Nicolas Cage version. Um, right. But what, but he's, he said, that Jesus was going to come back before he died and, and he passed away a few years ago, which, right. I mean, I, I can't really imagine what must've been going through his mind in, in those last few days. And, and for people that really follow, followed his work and, and maybe still do, why do you think that after all the disappointment that we've faced from this theology that we're still so attached to it? Well, um, great question. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons um, well, one reason is we definitely have been indoctrinated to believe since we were very young. If we, if, if like you, if you're like me and you grew up in the church and you went through Sunday school and all that stuff. Um, so I, I have years and years, I have a, my whole lifetime practically, uh, of being, having it drilled into my head that the Bible did, can, does contain, um, information and prophecies about our immediate future. Mm. 
And so I believe that. I mean, I just automatically, intuitively believe that. And so, as I said a minute ago, the minute someone shows up and says, I've got it, I understand it, I've seen it. Uh, well, we want to hear what that guy's got to say because because we think there is some kind of a code to be cracked in in the scriptures uh, about the future. And just in general, I think human beings are curious. You know, it's why, why, does, why do people read their horoscope? Why do people go to palm readers? Why do people, um, you know, do those kinds of things? Well, because we are insatiably curious about the unknown. We want to know about the future. You know, who am mm-hmm. I going to marry? And, and uh, you know, how many kids am I going to have? And what's my career going to be? And will I ever be famous? Will I be a millionaire or whatever? You know, like, um, you know, we, we, we just want to know those things. We're curious. And so I understand that uh, it's a human thing. We just, we want to know. And, and, and if you do have this desire to know, and if someone's convinced you, well, the Bible's got the answers. And, and especially if, if, they, if they're telling you, the Bible has the only answers, the best and only answers. Don't go anywhere else. It's all in the Bible. Hmm. Well, then you're just going to always believe that there is something in there, right? Yeah. So I think I think that's partly why. Yeah. That's, gosh, that that's such a a great way to put it of 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 curiosity. I mean, I I'm a I'm I'm a very skeptical person, and so my mind always goes mm-hmm. to the 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 worst possible thing, and it's always, oh, it's because we're we're narcissists and we like to be the lone cowboy and. <laughs> That's kind of just the American way. Like we want to be high noon cowboys riding out against the Antichrist outside of Jerusalem or whatever comes to my brain. But to yeah. to really put it into into that pra- the the practical essence of that is we're just curious and and this is what we've been fed. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, I that well, sorry, yeah, what were you and, and you know, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say like the but I think the other part of it too, like we you know we were talking about this this fantastic story. I mean, this is the reason why it makes a great movie or, or a series of movies, right? This is why it makes a great uh, story to tell. I mean, my gosh, that story is the most fantastic and amazing story. Like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right? And um, it's just a, it's a damn good story. Yeah. And so um, it captures our imagination and it's like the end of the world. And you got all these, you know, this antichrist figure and, good and evil and creatures and monsters. And, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, it's got everything. Hmm. Um, and so this is again, part of the challenge when someone like me says, Hey guys, um, that, that stuff was, that's metaphorical. That's apocalyptic hyperbole. Uh, by the way, was fulfilled already. It was about things that were going to happen soon. And the time was near and things that would happen quickly. I mean, this is the language used all through these apocalyptic passages, um, in Revelation and, and all of the discourse, like it's, it's soon and quick and within this generation and, you know, uh, on and on and on. It's, it's not 2000 years from now. It's like, no, look quickly soon. And, and it happened. It did happen. It was fulfilled. And actually you should know how it was fulfilled. This is the missing piece for, for most Christians. We don't have, no one ever really tells the story of just exactly how it was fulfilled in AD 70. Um, and I do this in the book, right? I look at the writings of Josephus, who was alive during the destruction of Jerusalem in 87. He was an eyewitness. He was he saw it happening, and he wrote a very detailed history of before, during, and after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And when you read what he wrote about it, again, this guy's not a Christian at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Jewish uh, Jewish man who wrote for the Rome on behalf of the Romans uh, this historical account of the destruction of Jerusalem. And when you read the details of what he describes. Uh, about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, 
you, when you put it side by side with the things that Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, when you compare it to things that are spoken of in Revelation, you suddenly notice how, oh my gosh, yes, all of those pictures, all those images, it was fulfilled. It actually was. And so because um, no one's ever really finished the story, right? We have the, we have the prophecies in, in, in all of the discourse and a revelation of these things that are going to happen in the future. And it stops there. It ends. And so no one ever says, oh, by the way, would you like to see how it ended? Would you like to see how it wrapped up? Because here it is. Well, then if you told that part of the story, I don't think we'd have this problem. Hmm. It'd, be really, it'd be really difficult to convince people that all that stuff that happened, oh, no, it's going to happen again. Well, it, what do you mean? How, how do you know that? Yeah. Why do you think that? Like, you need to convince me now that it's going to happen again because it doesn't say it's going to happen again. It says it's going to happen soon and quickly. And then within 40 years, that's exactly what happened. And it fits with everything that was said and the end. Hmm. So it would, be, it would be really difficult to convince somebody if they understood that and they could see that, um, that for some reason it's all going to happen again. Hmm. Uh, and then, and so once you replace that amazing story about the future, um, it's like, this is the challenge. How do I give anybody something with, that's a better story than that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, I just took away the Lord of the Rings trilogy and now I'm giving you, you know, Ladybird or something, or, <laughs> you know, something. I'm just giving you some really kind of like, Oh, that was okay. Yeah. It was all right. But well, it wasn't uh, this other huge, amazing epic. Well, now I know how you feel about Ladybird, Keith. So <laughs> I actually love that movie. I'm sorry. No, it really it was a good movie. Um, I love how you you really bring to the forefront the idea that that when Jesus talks about these events that are going to happen, that it that it's a very soon, it's it's a very soon and very present reality for the people at that time. And I, I guess my only question, and I know we're we're running short on time, of uh, the disciples said the same thing about the return of Jesus that he was coming soon. So, mm -hmm. is is Jesus going to return? Well, yes, but not the way we expect. Uh, I guess I should put it that way. And I think, I, and, and this is the thing that needs to be qualified. <clears throat> and again, I, I take time to do this in the book. One of our, one of our challenges, I think, reading those apocalyptic scriptures where Jesus talks about um, these things that are going to happen. And like you said, the disciples saying, Jesus is coming quickly. He's coming soon. Um, we, again, because we've been told this dispensational rapture kind of story, we read those words, but we have a different picture in our minds than they did. Mm -hmm. um, they understood that when Jesus says that he would come in the clouds, that is a very common reference all through the Old Testament. When Many, many times in the Old Testament, there are passages where God says he would come in the clouds against Egypt, or he would come in the clouds against Babylon, or even there's passages where it says he would come in the clouds against Jerusalem. Those were not happy times. Those were not good things. People weren't going, yay, here comes God in the clouds. No, no, no. When God was coming in the clouds, that was in a form of judgment, and usually an intense judgment that involved the destruction of their nation or their city and uh, the ones that weren't slaughtered, taken into captivity as slaves. Mm. And so when Jesus says he's coming in the clouds, they know that what he's referring to is this sort of day of the Lord type um, coming. And it's a coming in the sense of uh, there's a judgment involved and that what the Jewish people would have understood as 
some sort of a judgment that was being done. Um, and so that, and again, and we would understand that as, we should understand that as what happened in 87. Mm. That is the context for the whole Olivet Discourse. And we, and the whole thing begins with Jesus and the disciples walking out of the temple and the disciples stopping and telling, looking, you know, telling Jesus, look at these amazing, look at this temple. Isn't this phenomenal? Isn't this fantastic? Isn't this a beautiful thing? And how, you know, what an amazing, impressive temple this is. And then Jesus says to them, well, the day is coming soon when what, when what, not one stone will be left upon another and will be completely destroyed. And then they're like alarmed and they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, hold on. Tell us when will these, these things be? When is the sign of these things happening? And in only one of the gospels, uh, it's added the phrase and the sign of your coming. But again, the sign of your coming is in the context of they understood, oh, you're coming to do what? To to fulfill this prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Um, but so that's that there, there's sort of two senses of coming. So on the one hand, there's the coming of Christ in the sense of judgment, as they would have understood it against Jerusalem and the temple in 8070. But there's a there is another sense of the coming of Christ, which is in more, I think, the spirit of the way we would we would think of it, which is the positive side of it, right? Yeah. Um, Christ sort of coming out of heaven to earth to to do some amazing things here on earth to uh, advance his kingdom and to make all things new and all of that. Now, yes, of course that is going to happen. And I absolutely believe that's going to happen. But I don't believe it's going to happen in the sense that you will be driving down the road in your car, listening to music, talking to your friend, and your friend will go, holy crap, look at that. And you look up in the air. Oh, is that, is that Jesus? Yes. <laughs> is he riding? Holy crap. He's riding a horse. Doo, doo, doo. Oh, I heard a trumpet. Oh my gosh. Hold on. I'm floating out of, out of my skin. I'm flying. I'm floating into the sky. Oh my gosh. Look at us. We're flying. Wee. <laughs> no, that won't happen. <laughs> that is not the way that's going to be fulfilled. Hmm. And I think, again, that's the missing part. Um, and that's probably the, that's probably my, the thing I'm most excited about talking about. Uh, in the in the in my book, because I I genuinely came across this on my own. Uh, I I didn't. It's not like I, I mean I'm sure there are other, other books. People have even told me, oh that sounds like this other book I read or this other guy had another idea. I'm like that's great. I'm so glad other people came across the same idea. Mm. But I'm telling you, I was just sitting in my living room one day. I remember the day it happened. I'm sitting in my living room and and I'm and I'm reading this scripture verse and I thought, huh. I wonder what that means. And I, I flipped over and I looked at this other verse that was similar and I was like, Oh, wait a minute. And then it's like this little light bulb went on. I was like, Holy crap. And I jumped over to revelation. And I read this other verse and I was like, Oh my gosh. And it just clicked for me. Like, so like, I feel like, I mean, I know I didn't invent it, but at least I feel like I got it. Yeah. Like it sort of like hit me. Like, Oh my gosh, I see something I never saw before. And when, and part of what I was seeing was this idea that, um, Jesus says he'll never leave us or forsake us, right? Um, Jesus says, when he says in John, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you where that where I am, you will be also. Well, where is he now? Well, he's living inside me. Yeah, that's right. He says, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And he also says in the same gospel, a little bit later, that if you love me, my father and I will come and make our home in you. Mm. Okay. So if we define heaven as wherever God and Jesus are, and we're with them, where are God and Jesus now? in me and I'm with them. Oh, that's the place Jesus is preparing that he will be with, that where he is, we will be also like he's already here. Like Christ has, this is why he says it's better for you if I go away. 
And we today, 2,000 years later, are still convinced that it would be so much better if Jesus would come back. When he mm. said, no, it's better if I go away. Wow. And we don't understand what he means by that, right? And this is also why, this is another, I think this is probably the verse that, that uh, one of those three verses that I saw that day in my living room that, that w- was connecting the dots for me. There's a verse um, where Paul says, and I think it's in Romans, where he says that all creation is groaning and longing for something. And it's not the second coming of Jesus. What he says is, is that all creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. That's you and me. That's us. What is that about? Well, in the context of what he's saying, what, the, what all creation, the entire universe is longing and groaning for is for us to realize Christ is already here in us. We are the incarnation of Christ in the world today. And it's been, we have been for over 2,000 years. So I kind of refer to it as a slow motion second coming of Christ. It started 2,000 years ago uh, as he, he abides in everyone who, who knows him. And, and then one by one, more and more, people uh, also right have Christ come alive in them, and they incarnate Christ in the world. And, and the plan eventually, like Jesus says, is this little yeast, this little seed, seems so tiny, so small, so insignificant, but eventually that little pinch of yeast eventually will uh, will cover the entire lump of dough. Hmm. And that's a picture of this second coming of Christ, is that's how he comes into the world. This is how Christ comes into the world, transforms the world, transforms us, uh, that the kingdom of Christ um, overcomes the kingdoms and takes over the kingdoms of this world. And so... I mean, to me, that's very clear. That is what Jesus says. That is what Paul says. That is what the New Testament reveals, that that this is the way that Christ is going to come and return and build his kingdom on earth. So is Jesus coming? Yes, he has been for 2,000 years, and he's going to keep coming, and it's inevitable. I mean, it's something where it, it doesn't matter what happens, what else is going to happen. It Nothing will stop it. Mm. It, will, it. It will one day absolutely happen. Um, and that's what I believe. And I, I think that's what scriptures reveal. Yeah. Wow. That's a man. That's a, that, that's, <laughs> that's a lot to take in. Sorry. I'm, I, that's man. You, you just blew my mind, Keith. Um, well, there's way more than that. I didn't want to, I didn't want to just divulge the entire thing, but there's, um, but of course there's all kinds of, um, questions that come up as a result of yeah. that, right? So Yeah, I, I, I think, and, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you go ahead. I, I think my my biggest question, I mean, soon, very soon, I, I obviously this podcast is about practicality and what this looks like for us now and, and how we kind of live this out. Um, but I got to be honest with you, Keith. I, I know that I'm the incarnation of Christ on this earth that I, I am where he is, but there's still a part of me that really longs to be with him. If that makes yes. sense. No, of course it does, Chris. And, le- and let me just tell you, let me just promise you something right now. And I can say this with, with the absolute authority of scripture, Chris, very soon you will open your eyes and you will be face to face with Christ and you will be one with him and you will be with him and you will be, you will be with him for eternity. That is going to happen, and it's going to happen very, very soon. In the blink of an eye, in the within a few heartbeats, 
you will. You will be face-to-face with Christ, and you will be with him. Uh, if you want to say physically, literally, um, you will be. Mm. Absolutely. So, But it's not going to be fulfilled, in, like I said, in the way of like, you know, you're on your way to Walmart one day, and Jesus all of a sudden appears in the sky yeah. and flies down. Like, So I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm saying, yes, you will. We all will. We will all be face-to-face with Christ. We will all be with him for eternity. Um, I'm not taking that away from anybody. I, I think the scriptures do affirm that. Yeah. I just think the way we get there is a is different than we thought it was. Yeah. But we will absolutely get there because one day I'm going to die and you're going to die. And when I do, I will experience the second resurrection and, and I will uh, be resurrected to life again uh, in a new body, face to face with Christ. And I believe what will happen is I will wake when I wake up after I die. Uh, I get to sort of leapfrog over uh, all the time it's going to take to actually, um, you know, transform Earth into the kingdom of Christ completely. I get to leapfrog over that and and just kind of show up uh, on on the day that he cuts the ribbon, <laughs> like, oh hey, you're here, and we're done, we did it, come on in. <laughs> so I, I do think that's going to happen, mm. absolutely. I I just don't think it happens the way we we think it is, and I think that scriptures show us a very different way that. He, that we're going to get there. Yeah. And that makes so much more sense of, of the Christian life. I mean, even as, as you're talking, I'm, I'm reminded of when Richard Rohr in the universal Christ talks about love being the, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but it was, it, it stuck with me, but it, it, that, that love is the uh, drawing together of everything, regardless of how much it tries to resist itself or, or something right. along those lines. And, and that is in a lot of ways, if God is love and we are one with Christ, then that is what we are called to be. And and we're not always just running headfirst at it, but th- that is what this life is supposed to be about. And and I think that, man, that Keith, that's so good. Like, shoot, I'm, <laughs> I'm so, I, I don't even, I don't even know. I could just cut here and be like, we're good. Um, <laughs> But I, I do want to ask you, how does this affect the way we live? What, 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 how then shall we live? What do we do? Right. Well, um, absolutely. I think, I think what I'm talking about, if people really understand what I'm saying and get, and, 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 and I guess you have to at some point go, well, okay, Keith, I think you may be right. So like you said, now what? Well, the beautiful thing about what I'm saying is that everything I'm saying is about us doing something. Because understand the other way of thinking about, well, Jesus is coming back any minute now. And when he does, he's going to kick a bunch of ass, all the all the evil people. He's going to slaughter them, destroy them in this massive. But the rest of us, man, we are we make it huge party in the sky and then, you know, and you have a new earth, blah, blah, blah. Yay. Hmm. But what that that what that picture does is it paralyzes us. So it so it, Christians who buy into that picture are literally waiting for Jesus to come back and fix it. And which means they're waiting. They're not really actively doing anything to to bring that about other than, let's say, uh, you know, do something politically or let's rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Like, OK, maybe they're maybe they're pushing in that direction, hmm. but it's not about the practical. How am I following Christ in, in the world today? So I think if we can if I can break that that uh, delusion of dispensationalism off of us and say, no, nope, let me just show you that's nonsense. I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to show you it's nonsense. That's not, not what the scriptures say at all. Here's what I think it does say. Well, what it really does now is it makes you and me active participants in building that kingdom of Christ that will one day um, 
you know, make all things new. And so we get to be people who embody Christ. We get to be people who, um, we get to be the incarnation of Christ in the world today because this is the, we, you know, this is how that yeast spreads to the whole lump of dough. So we get to be Christ to people around us. We get to, you know, love our enemy, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse us. And, and all of those things, when we do that, again, it may seem simple, it may seem weak, it may seem like nothing, but it really isn't. Uh, all of that that's going on really is making the world new again, making all things new. And we should be excited. It should make us excited to be about that. It should make us even more excited because we recognize that when we go and live this way, when we go and love this way and serve this way and and have this, have Christ in us, we abide in Christ and he abides in us in this, these very tangible, real ways, um, we are making that reality more real and more possible all the time. Mm. So I think that should make us more excited about participating in those things. It's not just sort of like, well, it's a good thing to do. And yeah, it's, you know, it's good for you and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. There should be some urgency and some excitement about it. Like this is God's plan. This is the way he transforms everything. And he's given us, again, it's waking up and recognizing what all creation is groaning for. It's for the sons of God to wake up uh, and, and uh, for us to be revealed. Mm. So our part to play in it is to, yes, let's be revealed. Let's make ourselves known. Let's go ahead and live this out, uh, out in the open, because that is the plan. Hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I, I don't know how you did it, Keith, but you somehow managed to tell a more beautiful, badass story than dispensationalism. <laughs> so congratulations. Uh, well, I'm, I'm here for a, for a front row seat. Um, <laughs> I guess last question in closing this this kind of theology this dis dispensationalism especially for for our friends who for our brothers and sisters quite frankly who still find themselves running within mainstream evangelicalism particularly in America this is a this is a very scary cliff to jump off of um mm -hmm. when you start questioning what's going to happen in the end and and it's something that I'm sure you've experienced and you're, you are going to experience. It's something I've experienced. It's something so many of us who have kind of deconstructed our faith and are now sitting in wherever the cliff ends or are still falling. Um, right. We, we kind of understand that, but what would you say to someone who says, you know, Keith, I hear you and I believe you and I, I totally see what you're saying, and I think the Spirit is, is convicting me of this to be true, but I'm scared. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say to them? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess my, if someone generally said that, I would say, I don't know why, what are you afraid of? Like, what scares you? Because I think to me, if I compare side by side, the dispensationalist end times view of you know, the Antichrist and, and the mark of the beast and the tribulation and all that versus what I'm saying, which is, um, no, the, the kingdom has already started and come now. And Jesus is in the process of transforming everything uh, into the kingdom of Christ, uh, one person at a time and into a world that looks like Jesus. Um, which of those two should you be afraid of? <laughs> like <laughs> I, I grew up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I grew up in this dispensational thing. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night terrified. Like I'd lay in bed at night thinking, have I been left behind? Am I, am I, am I, am I alone in the house? And I would have to get up and go down the hallway 
and put my ear to my parents' bedroom door until I heard my dad snoring or I heard the, you know, someone roll over in the bed and it creaked or something, mm. uh, that they were still there. And then I could go, oh, gosh, okay. Then I could go back to bed. But I mean, I repeated that over and over again. I know many people have told me the same stories where they wake up in terror that Jesus has come back and they've been left behind. And I mean, that to me is what creates fear. Hmm. Um, what I'm talking about shouldn't make you afraid at all. It actually should take away your fear and give you a whole lot of hope and excitement uh, about the fact that, I mean, in the end, Jesus wins. We know it. It's inevitable. There's no doubt, no question. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus is going to win and he, and that's absolutely inevitable. And we get to be a part of making sure that that happens, right? We're on the team that blocks and tackles and clears the lane so he can make it to the end zone. And then we get to celebrate with him when it happens. So that's a, to me, a much better story. Hmm. I, I think the only thing to be afraid, if someone's afraid in the sense of like, well, I'm afraid because Jesus isn't coming back the way I thought he was. Well, I guess I can understand that. Like you were saying, that's kind of a hard thing to let go of. Hmm. But again, the what I would say is, um, uh, again, like I kind of was saying to you, you know, you will, I guarantee you, in your lifetime, you will see Jesus face to face and you will be with him. Mm. And it will be very, very quickly because most of us only have a few years to live, right? Uh, if we live a good long life, that's still, what, 40 years, maybe 50 years. And then and then you go, there you go. You'll see Jesus. And the, the clock is counting down already and it's going to happen. Mm. So uh, don't be afraid of that, right? I mean, it's the it's it's what Jesus says, and it's what the uh, every angel that ever appeared to anyone ever said. Anytime he appeared to anybody, fear not. There's no need to fear. Mm. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you so much for for being with with us today. And and gosh, I I just really appreciate your work. Um, I appreciate the care with which you you approach the people that that you are trying to reach. Uh, with with your writing and with with Heritage Happy Hour and and even the way that that you engage with your dissenters and and the people that disagree with you even in very uh, visceral manners, I, I just really appreciate your heart as a, quite frankly as a pastor um, for for people both that you're trying to to serve and also people who disagree with you. Um, so I'm I'm very appreciative and I'm so excited to to pick up this book as soon as I can get my hands on it. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you, Chris, so much. I appreciate that very much. And thank you so much for, for doing this podcast and giving an opportunity for people like me to come and, and share, uh, hopefully words of hope and encouragement for people that are listening. So thank you. Absolutely.